Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. This is a talk I gave in Norwich in 2012 on the knotty subject of sexuality and spirituality. It's good to see you here uh, this evening, especially on this fairly uninviting night. Uh, uh, Any who I don't know, David Gibbs is my name. I'm the chair of this uh, interfaith uh, group here in Norwich, and it's lovely to see some new faces here today. If you manage to get in, sorry to start on this note, if you manage to get in without paying, we hope you won't go out without paying. There are refreshments afterwards so we can mingle around and uh, uh, we welcome, first of all, there now, Alistair, Alistair Appleton, who hopefully some of you will recognise from his appearance on the television, uh, quite regularly on uh, Escape to the Country on BBC One. Some of you will see it and if you watched it just, was it yesterday I think it went out, uh, he was actually trying to encourage people to come and live in Norfolk, uh, <laughs> which he often does, so he boosts the local economy, which is a good thing. And on tomorrow night, as long as we stay up late enough, on Radio 3, haven't you? No. Oh, you're, you're recording it tomorrow night, is that right? Uh, no, it's a live, it's a live presentation, there's no, oh, but it's no not, recording. It's, it's not on You have to radio. physically be in, in London on Saturday. Oh, right. With, because Alison not only uh, presents uh, that programme, uh, State of the Country, but also works as a, as a host, as it were, to the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, is what he's doing tomorrow night, which is why we had to change uh, our meeting from tomorrow night to this night, so we could tie in with that uh, particular commitment that Alistair has. Uh, unfortunately, because the... Uh, Israel-Palestine conflict is still going on, Uh, we have a competing meeting with us tonight, and as we know, it's it's people in uh, uh, the sort of circles that have come to this sort of meeting and also interested in Stop the War uh, campaign, and they have put on a meeting this evening, understandably, an urgent meeting in relation to Gaza-Israel. I heard about this just yesterday. At the same time, I heard that uh, there was going to be a ceasefire at 7 o'clock yesterday evening, so I was hopeful that they wouldn't have to hold that evening, but sadly the ceasefire didn't come to anything, and it looks as though it's going to be a little time before they get there, isn't it? Um, but I thought as that is going on at the moment, we'd just have a moment or two's silence before we begin, just as we, in our own way, remember those people caught up in the horrors of the Israel-Gaza conflict at the moment before we go on into the main meeting. So, Alistair, we're delighted to have you here, and as you see, he's come to speak to us 
on sexuality and spirituality. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you very much, David. And, and thanks again, for everyone, for coming this evening. Um, and thanks to the Norwich Interfaith for inviting me. It's a, it's a great delight to be here under a slightly different, wearing a slightly different hat that I'm usually wearing. I am... Um, let's see if I can... We have an array of technology here, so bear with me if it doesn't all go terribly well. I have to say I'm very proud... This is why I was in a slight fluster when I arrived, because I'm very proud of this PowerPoint presentation that I've put together for you. So I was slightly um, horrified that I might have lost it through technical incompetence on my part. So um, uh, I'm hoping that it will all go well. So I am indeed, as David uh, kindly pointed out, a TV presenter. And, um, but I'm not here as a TV presenter, even though I was here earlier in the year filming uh, in wonderful Norwich and Norfolk. But I'm here actually with other hats. Um, I'm also a practicing Buddhist. My training uh, in meditation was in Buddhism. I'm also a, a freshly minted psychotherapist. I've just completed my psychotherapy training. And uh, I'm also a mindfulness teacher. I've been very interested in meditation for many years and practice on a regular basis and teach across the country in that capacity. So even though I know we've just had two minutes silence for our brethren in, in Gaza, I was wondering if it might be quite nice just to spend a little bit to do a, a short um, guided meditation just to ground us. So I was wondering if you could just sit comfortably with your feet on the floor and close your eyes and just take a few moments to arrive in the room. It's a miserable day outside, so take a few breaths and be aware of your body. And as you breathe out, let your body expand and soften down onto the pews. Feel the feet connect to the floor. And just notice your breathing. And then take a little time to widen your awareness to the sounds of the chapel ticking of the clock, humming, But also widen your awareness to take in how you're feeling this evening. Any emotions, any pain, discomfort, pleasure. And in the stillness to also tune into what you're thinking, sort of thoughts. <coughs> Voices or images.
And then just in verse, tune back into the sounds of the room. The sensations of your breathing. And your feet and your sitting bones on the floor and the pew. Okay. Thank you for that. Slightly self-interested because I've been flapping around like a, a damaged bird trying to sort this out, so it's also quite nice for me to arrive in this very beautiful building. Um, I'm not, however, here with my mindfulness hat on this evening, although it is tangential to what I'm going to talk about. Uh, This hat is actually more apposite. I'm a gay man, and what I'd like to talk about this evening is uh, about spirituality and sexuality. And sexuality, as hopefully at the end of of the talk, I'm going to talk for about 40 minutes and then hopefully open up the discussion. Um, at the beginning, I'd like to draw on my experience, or the experience perhaps of, of gay people, gay men and women, in their relationship with spirituality. Uh, so start quite narrowly and widen out into a, perhaps a wider discussion of, of the spirit and, and sexuality. But um, my, my path, I'll also be scattering some autobiographical little bits and bobs along the way, but my path has been shaped very much by growing up as a gay man in, in an essentially heterosexual world. So I'd like to start with... Um, that's the wrong one. <laughs> I'd like to start with some sad facts. I work for the Terence Higgins Trust, which is a HIV charity, in London, as part of my psychiatric, uh, my psychotherapeutic training, and most of most of my clients are gay men, and there are some very sad, sad statistics which come out of several studies. One back in 2003, which is from the National Institute of Mental Health in England, and then another very important one by Professor King, a bit a bit later, 2008, and then there's also a recent one which came out this year carried out by Stonewall, which is another gay and lesbian charity. Gay men are two and a half times more likely to suffer anxiety than straight men. They are four times more likely to commit suicide. They think about suicide even more. The disproportion is even higher. And actually, in the Stonewall report, which came out uh, very recently, the figure is meant to be six times more likely. Uh, They have a a much more greater likelihood of becoming addicted to drugs or alcohol. And in the King study, we've found that um, gays and lesbians are a much higher risk of mental illness, social isolation and deliberate self-harm than heterosexual people. And I suppose what made me start with this point is some of the thinking around sexuality from the perspective of religion. And actually, in religion, I also can put in most of society, and sadly, up until relatively recently, most thinking around mental health, 
that these qualities were somehow inherent in the sad life of a homosexual. Um, but the fact is that these are not inherent, but they are a function of growing up in a world that doesn't really value you, and certainly doesn't value your sexuality. Dominic uh, Davis, who's uh, another famous, in that, in that world, a famous therapist who deals with these matters, says quite rightly that it's impossible to grow up in society where everything is geared to calling you a devil or calling you evil or degenerate or unnatural. It's very virtually impossible to grow up in that world and not internalize those values. So many gay, women, gay men and women grow up with a feeling that actually they are fundamentally flawed. And there's a very interesting um, American therapist called Joe Court who came up with a, I won't go into this in great detail, but he came up with an interesting idea that actually what happens growing up in a gay and a straight world is effectively like covert abuse. It's like covert child abuse. You could imagine, for example, if a black child grew up in a white family and every day was told that being black was bad, that black people were somehow shameful, that um, you know, nothing good would come out of being black and under no circumstances should you go be black, then that would very definitely be considered abuse. The problem, or the, the difficulty growing up gay in a straight world, is that the difference is invisible. So it's quite possible that, without meaning to a straight parent, can spill all those, those attitudes over their child because they don't realise that their child is gay. So they grew up with this invisible uh, difference that they are carrying, and they alone are carrying, which is stigmatised by everyone around them. Um, and Joe Court makes this interesting comparison between the effects of actual childhood sex abuse, so children who are abused or physically abused when they're growing up, and the terrible, terrible trauma that that causes and the symptoms that that evokes later on in life, and some of these qualities that crop up in again and again in a gay life. So you can compare, for example, the survivors of abuse in one column and some of the mental problems that come up in gays and lesbians, like this. So I'll just flick through these. These are classic symptoms of child abuse. So inappropriate sexualized affection, preoccupation with sex, deadening of all feelings. So often people who have been abused as children go out of their way to have absolutely no sexual contact become very lonely, they tend to self-abuse. Their relationships, if they have them, are very short and they settle for very little. So then if you look at some of the very common problems that my clients at Terence Higgins arrive at the door with, then it becomes evident that actually it's not a, it's not a coincidence that they're almost identical. That Lots of gay men and women have a great problem separating sex, the sex act, from intimacy, loving intimacy. 
It's a great uh, um, incidence of sex addiction, sexual anorexia, which is again are these people, for example, who are in the closet to avoid any kind of sexual contact whatsoever. Very lonely, short-lived relationships, low self-esteem, and at the bottom line, great self-harm. So there's a sad and telling correlation between growing up being abused and going, growing up as a gay person in a world that seems to abuse you. And in some cases, in some sad cases, actually abuses you. And the reason I started with this is because the, the gay person grows up often with a great sense of internalised blame. They feel that they are at fault. When actually, the system is at fault, the society around them is at fault. Their parents unintentionally are at fault for not loving them for what they are and not cherishing or standing by what is their basic right, which is to love, to be attracted to those that they love, to spend time with those that they love, to go out on dates, to have sex for the first time. And all those things are somehow erased in a very tragic fashion. And that's partly to do with the conditioning of our generation. Hopefully that will change in years to come. Is already changing. So it's, it's that parents, society, school friends, schools, and religions are all complicit in this distortion of what is a very natural outpouring of connective love. And since we're talking about um, sexuality and spirituality, I now want to talk a bit about how, sadly, almost all of the world's religions are complicit in this. And I'm talking at the beginning just about um, gay sexuality, but I will widen it a bit as we go further on. So I'm going to do a quick tour of um, the, the main world religions, vis-à-vis their, their stance on homosexuality. Uh, it's not great, uh, as you probably imagine. Um, but I, I don't want to tar all religions with uh, you know, a homosexual bashing brush. Of course, a great, the great underswelling of almost all world religions is love and compassion. Nonetheless, there is a notable lack of support, let alone, well, tolerance, or the lack of tolerance, let alone support of, of gay children, gay young men and women growing up, if they have a faith. So looking at Christianity, there is very little biblical support for homosexuality, there's quite a lot of condemnation of it. And one of the common stances is this idea that it's a sin. That it is fundamentally a sin. And if you're growing up with that in mind, that's a very heavy weight to carry. And hating the sin and not the sinner is really a sort of slightly patronising and condescending loophole out of what essentially is homophobia. Um, it's not been a great day for the Anglican Church in terms of the church and gender. 
Um, I don't want to talk about the ordination of bishops here, but um, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, you can correct me if I'm wrong, has made a statement that he does not support gay marriage. And it seems that the, the laity in the Synod has also supported him in that, that the Anglican Communion as a whole does not support equal rights for gays and lesbians. Uh, the Catholic Church also has a long-term policy, slightly differently phrased. Of course, Protestants based on the word of the Bible. The Catholic Church has a more nuanced, perhaps philosophical objection to homosexuality along the lines of Thomas Aquinas, who says that it's not natural, it's not in the natural order, and the Catholic Church still um, recommends chastity for homosexual priests. Those are the main churches. Of course, there are extreme wings, and I don't want to dwell too much, but there's the notoriously hateful Westboro Baptist Church who makes no secret of their detestation of gay people. Particularly nauseating use of children to carry their message. Islam, also not a great fan of homosexual sex. All, all Islamic schools disapprove and in most Islamic states it's illegal and in some it carries a death penalty. There's also very vociferous homophobic protest in Islam. Judaism, in the, in the wonderful book of Leviticus, uh, counts homosexuality or a man lying with a man as an abomination. Um, you may be familiar with the, the many Let's see if I can find many other abominations in Leviticus. Eating shellfish, also an abomination, punishable by death. Um, wearing two kinds of fabric in your clothing, so a polyester cotton mix, also abomination. Um, but you can own male and female slaves, according to Leviticus 24.44. So, um, I'm not going to say much more about Leviticus, but... That is the, 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 the Jewish hard line. Of course, the Reformed Judaic uh, population is much more liberal, particularly in America. Hinduism. Well, Hinduism, now we're moving to the East. Hinduism has many kind of, uh, a many polyvalent uh, um, cast of gods, so male and female gods. But actually, most Swamis in 2003, so quite recently, most Swamis in the Hindu, Hindu world spoke out against gay sex, homosexual acts. Although, in the light of the 2008 Equality Act, the Hindu Council in the UK did say Hinduism does not condemn homosexuality. Which is a step in the right direction, but is not exactly open arm support. So Buddhism, which is my area of expertise, there is no explicit scriptural prohibition of gay sex in Buddhism. Um, however, if you're a monk, all sex is prohibited. And we'll come, I'll come on to this a little bit later. Um, nonetheless, 
sadly, in 1997, the Dalai Lama pronounced that gay sex is sexual misconduct, which makes it one of the five, comes under the remit of one of the five precepts. So effectively he's saying that if you are to be a good Buddhist, then you cannot be a practicing homosexual. He has um, not exactly recanted, but has had many conversations with people about this and is willing to change his mind. And then a quick canter through the rest. Pretty much all of these, Sikhism, the Baha'i religion, Jainism, Mormonism, don't have anything good to say about being gay. The only ones that do have things good to say about is neo-paganism and Satanism, who have a positive stance on sexuality. In, in a nutshell, not one world religion has anything positive to say about gay sexuality. There are some grudging, we tolerate, we do not condemn, we love the sinner but not the sin. But there's no one saying, Alleluia, you found a partner, God bless you, I'm so happy for you, let our community support you, let us cherish your love. May you young men and women who love other men and women be welcome and be part of our community without any stigma attached. And the reason I've started on this slightly narrow funnel is because this is my experience. I grew up in an Anglican communion and later turned to Buddhism. Um, But there's always been this tension as I've wrestled with my internalised homophobia I've always found many voices around me who are quite happy for it to be there. But the point is that, in fact, most religions do not positively value sexuality at all. I could replace the word gay sexuality certainly with transgendered sexuality, and sadly, in most cases, with female sexuality. A joyous celebration of the power of female sexuality is not apparent in most of our world religions. And I'd like to talk a bit about why that might be, but also sort of to start to think about what we want is a real a positive spin on it. And so there are some reasons why it's not had that. Um, and when we talk about the Abrahamic religions, so Islam, Judaism and Christianity, then largely it's to do with the unitary gender of the deity. But God is a man. He is a man and, importantly, he is an old man. And this is actually quite significant, because when we think about God the Father, when we think about the Father we think about the bearded white man, then the father is beyond the point of sexual activity. Once one becomes a father, one is no longer sexually active in the, in the very narrow biological sense. You've done your deed and that for the eight months of gestation, there's no more sex to be had. So there's something of a paradox in that Obviously, being a father, you've had sex because you've had children, but you have also sort of prorogued sex. You've gone beyond sex by becoming something else. You've moved into a different stage. So when our deity is in that state, 
And uh, of course, most of us don't believe in a sort of man with long grey hair and a beard. But these sort of memes, these ideas stay in our head. When, when we think that of the old man, then in the same way we wouldn't really talk about, well, sadly, we wouldn't really talk about sexuality in front of our great-grandfather. There's a sort of squeamishness, a prudishness. Then this is what pervades sexuality, the senex archetype that Jung talks about, the old man, does not sanction the kind of free, anarchic, connective power of sexuality. He wants order and he wants calm. So that's the, the I'm obviously generalising slightly, but that's the, that's the Abrahamic religions. But it's also true in another way of the Eastern religions. And this is perhaps true of all religion, and even of what we now call, might call spirituality, is this idea of transcendence. That where we want to be is up there. All of this, all this stuff around us, is somehow dirty and corrupt and dying and flawed. And where we need to be is up in moksha or in nirvana or in enlightenment. So there's a strong verticality. James Hillman, the Jungian analyst, talks about the, the vertical draw of Hermes up and away as opposed to the circular horizontal draw of Hestia, the goddess of the hearth which is more about what's here. So there's this tension between the transcendence away from the body and the imminence going into the body and celebrating what's in the body. And this is very, very key in a lot of Eastern religions in, in some ways, and I'll talk about that a bit later on. Perhaps more fundamental is this idea of splitting it's interesting, in the, in the Hindu cosmography, the world begins in a void, as the world often does, begins in a void, and then out of the void, there is the sense of I am. The self arises. And seconds after the, the, the phrase I am is uttered, the next thing that occurs is fear. It's, it's fascinating when you read in the in the in the the, book, the Hindu scriptures that they say that the first nothing, then I am, and then instantly fear. And it's fear, it's this primitive fear, that caused this very primitive defence, which is splitting. So what I don't like, what I fear, I put outside of myself. So I split away from what is not me to make myself safe, in inverted commas. So you get these polarising either-or dualities. You're either with us or against us. It's us or them. It's body or spirit. It's male or female. It's clean or it's impure. But underlying it all is a fear, in, in my belief. So there's a fear about, I am um, Christian and you are Islamic and you are different. There's no connection there. It's about making difference. There's a, clear, there's a clear difference between saying something is an abomination and something is pure in the eyes of the Lord. 
So this dualism, this, this split, has un- underpinning it is a, is a defense against this primitive fear, but it's, it's profoundly debilitating. So when we say that you know, human life is about this, but it's not about gay sexuality, it's not about female sexuality, it's not about this, it's not about that, then there's a, there's a fear in it that is, being, is driving that defense, but there's also huge loss. And this was something I encountered on a personal level in my life. I sort of, sort of went through a sort of late 20s burnout with lots of partying and drugs and decided that that was a terrible idea and that I needed to get my life straight. Interesting word. Um, and I uh, discovered meditation and Buddhism. So I really threw myself into it. I was like total Buddhist warrior. I went on retreats, I went to Thailand, joined a monastery, I practiced long kind of sessions, quite punishing um, ascetic practice. You know, I became a vegetarian, didn't, eat, didn't drink caffeinated tea. It was really not much fun to be around. Um, and Part of that was a sort of slightly more subtle, slightly more Buddhisty version of the same either-or split. Because there was the pure Alistair, the pure that felt peaceful and at ease and felt connected and you know, Buddhisty. And then there was the rotten Alistair that felt depressed, who still you know, went on binges, who, who kind of had bad thoughts. And sadly, my sexuality got caught up in this because there was this sense of being pure and not letting, stepping back from relationships, letting go of attachment, became a sort of puritanism, a sort of either-or splitting. And I became just unbearable to be around. It was what I call my meditation Nazi phase. Because this extreme, militant, brittle separation. I'm smiling. But uh, it, it was at such a cost, because I was losing all the connectivity. Which is, of course, ironic, because at some level of Buddhism, it's all about connectivity, but it's amazing how you can miss the point. And then in around 2004, I had the extraordinary experience of going to Brazil to make a documentary about... Oops. Shamanic Brazilian spirituality. Now this is a very different kettle of fish. The Brazilians are extremely sexual. It's an extremely sexual country. And the society is, is, has a much more, or a much different approach to human sexuality. But buried in the heart of the Amazon is a tradition uh, around this, ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is a brew made from these things, these two things, Banisteriopsis carpi, which is the vine that you can see on the right, and another bush called Chacruna. It was developed thousands of years ago in the the Peruvian Amazonian basin, and it's the underpinning of a, doesn't really have a religious name, but it's a sort of movement uh, within the native people of the Amazon who used this brew, it's a tea, it's a very vile tasting tea, uh, that gives you visions. They use it in a 
well, in a religious context. They go into a sort of trance state, and it's at the centre of their kind of spirituality, shamanic spirituality. And up until this point, I had had no experience of shamanism. I had no idea what it was. Any sort of very stereotypical idea of people with feathers and <coughs> the doors. Um, but I went to make this documentary about ayahuasca and drank it. And had uh, a week drinking it three times in the middle of the jungle. And had an absolutely extraordinary experience a life-changing experience, because I experienced spirituality in a way that I'd never experienced before. Because right at the heart of ayahuasca, in the, in the, in the ceremonies and in the, the symbolism of it, is, is the female. Did we get that? Oh, I've lost the female. Oh. It's a female experience. Ayahuasca is often visualised... Oh, I've gone too fast. Sorry. Um, Signalised as a snake, as a female snake. And the, the, the experience that you have is completely dissolved. The self dissolves. You have a, 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 often terrifying, it was terrifying, a terrifying experience of merger. But also insight, profound insight into one's psychological makeup and the nature, in my case, the nature of sexuality. Because I saw that rather than being an either-or, the universe is an and-and. There is no splitting. There is no separation. And sexuality, I realised, with extraordinary vivid, vividness, is the force that connects us. It's the centrifugal force that spins us out of the self into the, into the sea of the other. Um, so obviously this is a profound and very extreme uh, experience, a visionary experience. But it stayed with me in a very deep way when I started to come back and integrate the experience, when I started to think about my sexuality. Because I've always been interested in Eastern philosophy, and I came across this, this phrase, again, out of the um, Hindu scriptures, which is Vakruti Evam Pakriti, which... Um, many ways of translating these things but the one that I'm going to use is this diversity is what nature is all about so this was a this was an extremely powerful sense for me that actually it wasn't about being one thing or the other it wasn't about being gay or straight or male or female it was actually about being profuse and exuberant and that actually the universe doesn't work by splitting, it works by profusion, by and-and. You can hold these two things simultaneously. You don't need to split. A sort of profusion. And this was... I, I, I made a lot more sense of this when I started to study as a psychotherapist and was thinking particularly because my clients often come from, the, from this group of, of people to think about homophobia... And I came across this wonderful book by a man called Bruce Badgermill called Biological Exuberance. And if you ever in the library and they have it, I would, it's worth half an hour sort of flicking through it. Essentially, uh, Badgermill's book is a compedium of, of other sexuality in the animal kingdom. So it gives 
example after example after example of non-heterosexual, non-reproductive sex pairings in the. Um, let's see if I can get some examples here. In the animal kingdom. And he argues very strongly and gives a lot of evidence that actually this Darwinian idea that we're only on, on the planet to give birth to other creatures is, um, is flawed. So Thomas Aquinas' natural argument that homosexuality is a, is a sin because it's not natural is flawed because actually when you look into the natural world without having the blinkers of, um, well, the heterosexualist reproductive Darwinian goggles, then you actually see that all the evidence is stacked up to profusion, to this extraordinary exuberant variation. And he gives lots of uh, often quite comic examples of how creatures often do not reproduce. There are some species, I've got them here, Many species have non-breeding individuals. Some individuals, somewhere more, than, so somewhere more than half don't breed. The American bison, right whales, only 50% of the species breed. Three quarters don't breed in the blackbuck or the giraffe. Or in 95% of New Zealand sea lions, north elephant seals and naked mole rats do not reproduce. So the majority of these species do not reproduce. So his argument is actually reproduction is wonderful and necessary, of course, but it's an incidental byproduct of the goal of nature, which is not necessarily rampant reproduction, but he argues exuberance. He takes George Bataille's idea of the general economy, that actually what we're dealing with in life is not scarcity, it's not that we're all battling over a little thing, but the sun's energy is so vast and so infinite that actually nature is about expending this resource in ridiculously various ways. Which is why we have hyenas that give birth through the clitoris rather than the vagina. While we have caterpillars that turn into chrysalises and then turn into butterflies, where we have birds of paradise, where we have exuberance and variation. Because the underpinning idea of life is not about just reproduction and die, it's about splurging the gift, splurging the energy in as many variant ways as possible. Um, He's, and he ends his book with this lovely... So I'm not going to get at this. There you go. This lovely quote. Earth's profusion simply will not be contained within procreation. Lives of intense briefness or sustained incandescence, whether procreative or just creative, each is fueled by the generosity of existence. And this had a quite profound effect on me when I was thinking about homophobia and my own internalised homophobia and I suddenly realised that I had bought into the cultural and religious and spiritual arguments about why I was a bad person. And this has profound consequences, not least on the enormous symptoms that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk about how gays and lesbians suffer so much of mental illness, but also in the terms of this idea of the energy and the vitality that we have in life. 
Because if we are splitting and we are saying, oh, I don't want that, and I can't be this, and I don't want to be that, and I should never be that, and I'm not going to be these, then we are wasting our life. We are barraging ourselves into a smaller and smaller and smaller room and saying no to everything. And this has a a sort of, it's like exorcism, we're getting rid of stuff rather than integrating stuff. And this, you can think of this as being a sort of waste, a waste of energy, because there's the red thing, which is the thing that we don't want, so our gay sexuality, for example. And then there's the enormous psychic effort we expend, the red arrows, trying to stop it. So there's a double loss of energy. We lose the first and the second. And when we relax that, when we stop being either or, and we integrate, then we have a double gain of energy. We gain the thing that we were always barraging against, and we also free up all that energy we were wasting in suppressing it. So the net effect is we are integrating all this universal energy into our system and becoming more alive, which is what I start to, started to believe was the true essence of spirituality. Not about being less alive, but actually about being more profuse, more alive. So there's this integration, this integration of the energy of the universe into ourselves, which is tremendously healing and tremendously powerful and tr- tremendously inspiring when you're experiencing it. But then there's also an, another step, because we can be full of energy, but we also need to outgrate. We need to move that energy outwards. And this is where I began to understand the role of sexuality. Sexuality, in its widest, most universal sense, is the force that connects us, that spins us out of ourselves, out into the other. Other people, other places, out of this small pool of self, we get spun out and outgrated into the, the greater universe. And so, if you like, sexuality is the propulsive force that connects us. And I, I started to see that actually connection, after my experiences with ayahuasca, that connection is the most crucial thing in, in spirit. Spirituality is really about connection, why the communion of a church, the communion of a faith is so vital and important. But actually, if we, if we strip away the glue and the, the force that compels us to connect, then it, it's very difficult. We're fighting a losing battle. I'm slightly conscious of the time, but um, I wanted to talk briefly about how I then came slightly full circle into, in my Buddhism to a, a sort of more... We could have called it esoteric, but perhaps more mystic wing of Buddhism, which is the sort of tantric uh, end of Buddhism. So some of the Buddhisms around Tibet, for example. I don't mean tantra in the sort of cheesy sort of sex tantra, but in the sort of highest echelons of, of Buddhist philosophy. And I went on this very interesting uh, seminar upon Holy Island, which is my sort of place where I work and my spiritual home up in Scotland, uh, about male and female sexuality and in the Buddhist way of thinking about it. And it had a quite a profound effect on the way I thought about it because 
they uh, in well, let me show you a picture you may be familiar I don't know if you've seen these, these amazing icons in Tibetan uh, iconography the tankers so they have they use a lot of deity visualisation so they're not actually gods that they worship but they're gods that stand for certain qualities of, of human existence and I was introduced to two that I wasn't familiar with one called Chakrasambara who is what they call a wrathful deity. You can see that because he's surrounded by fire. He has a zillion arms, eight, I think, eight arms, all carrying various symbolic uh, instruments. And you can't really see here, but he's actually having sex. Can you see the red... I'm not sure if you can see it, but the red figure sitting on him or hanging off him is his female half. It's, it's rather unfortunate because it, he, he sort of swamps her, but actually, if you see a statue, they're equally sized. Obviously, if you're equally sized, you wouldn't be able to actually see him, so they sort of make him smaller. But at this level of Tantra, there's this, this idea of what Jung would call the conjunctio, of the coming together, the, the end of the polarity, the end of the either-or. But what was particularly interesting for me is the qualities of Chakrasambara are not are quite um, boisterous. He's a, he's a wrathful deity. He's, he's got skulls and knives and tridents. And he's a wild energy. This is right at the very universal end of the spectrum. He's, he's the form, the bliss, the, the kind of wild energy of maleness. And what's most important is that he's not a father. He's not got a beard. He's very sexual. The sexual energy is what drives him into connection with the, his opposite, the feminine. And he represents in the, in the iconography the bliss of form, the coming into being. Because at the other side is this wonderful creature, Vadra Yogini, who is his opposite number, who is the wild elemental female. And what was very striking for me is that she's not a mother either. You know, very often when we think about female spirituality, it's like Lakshmi and the mother goddess and relaxing into the mother. And for me, it was very interesting to see that the very pinnacle of, of this, this philosophy was a, a female energy that was nothing to do with motherhood. It was nothing to do with the end of sex that motherhood kind of represents in one way. It was about the full-blooded sexuality of the young woman. And she carries, in the one hand, a chopper that chops through because she is the, she is the element of dissolving. If the male is the coming into form, Vadra Yogini is the dissolving, the dissolving back into non-being. And she has this chopper in her hands that chops through, cuts things up slices things up, destroys things, dissolves things. And these are all qualities that we don't really necessarily can, when we think of, ah, oh, the goddess is usually more loving, but you know, if you're familiar with Kali, that this is a much more kind of bloody, earthy, sexualized feminine. And as I said, she, she represents the wisdom of non-form. And there is a... There is a famous, another famous conjunctio in, in the Tibetan Tantra of Vajrasattva and Vajraparati. 
which is the, what they call the yab-yum. So when these, these, these deities are having sex, it's called the yab-yum. It's the union of form on the one hand and emptiness or non-form on the other. And this feels like it, we're now way beyond sort of whether you're man or a woman or gay or straight. This is, from the Tibetan point of view, this is the fundamental tension in the universe. The, the coming into form and the dissolving. And when we start to think about these as the sort of fundamental, if you like, the elemental, the quarks of existence, then it becomes very liberating when we think about growing up gay, growing up straight, being transgendered, being a lesbian, being a mother or being a... When we come into union, when we come into partnership, we are not coming into union just as a man and a woman. We're coming into union as a man full of the feminine dissolving and the masculine coming into form, and a woman full of the feminine dissolving and the masculine coming into form. And if we come together as two men, then similarly we've got a man, a male coming into form and a feminine coming into form, and in the other partner, the mirror. So that actually it doesn't make any difference about gender or genitals or coming together in any particular constellation, because you are always bringing together the fundamental building blocks of existence, the coming into form and the dissolving out of form, so that the feminine and masculine transcend gender, transcend bodies even, on this level. And on that level, all of the kind of either-or splitting falls to one side. And for me, this is a much more, this makes much more sense as a view of sexuality. Because in this instance, sexuality and spirituality are identical. They are the same. They are the union. So I'm conscious that I've slightly overspoken, as, as is my want. But I just wanted to simplify it all and boil it down into a very simple <laughs> uh, phrase which I once wrote in an, in an essay and seems, people seem to like, which is that. Sex is not about making babies, it's about making friends. And in the wider sense, I hope that uh, when our spirituality blossoms, then it brings us true spiritual friendship. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Alistair, for that, and, uh, and particularly for your being open in so much of that three-year-old person. It's been, it's been enormously valuable, I'm sure. And hopefully that will show by the way people respond and ask questions. Yeah. Take your time. So, let's start. <laughs> While there is a history of bigotry from religions about alternative sexualities, I think we need to be clear that that's not always the case. It is possible to grow up integrating your spirituality and your sexuality, and that there are a lot of faith communities out there that allow you to do that. Mm. Uh, I'm biased because I'm here and it's never been an issue here, but 
even at my age, it was possible to grow up with an alternative sexuality and not find any bigotry, really, in, in the faith communities I was in. I appreciate that was your experience, and it's a lot of people's experience, but it's not, it's not the only one by any Of course, yeah. Well, you're extremely lucky. Because that is, I'm sad to say, is really not the experience of most people growing up in faith communities or in any community. Well, I wouldn't. I would. I would challenge whether it's a lot. I, th- I think you're v- very fortunate to have to grown up with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yes, I'll just do this. Uh, sorry, I think to, to, it was uh, that, that, that there is still a lot of terrible bigotry and people do suffer enormously because of it. Um, and, but I think what's, what you said was very interesting is that five, years, five, ten years ago that I probably wouldn't have been standing here talking about it. And um, this does give me a lot of hope. And to, to, to add on what, to what you were saying, I, I'm not at all pessimistic. I think, I, I, I too truly believe you were very blessed to grow up that, that way. But I, I do believe that people growing up now, young gay men and women uh, growing up now, do have a much, much better start. I was very heartened. I, I, grew up, I went to a Catholic boys' school, um, which was not a model of tolerance um, for any kind of sexuality, really. Um, but I went back recently and they've gone co-ed and I was talking to a friend of mine who's now the matron there (laughs) it's a boarding school and uh, she told me that the head boy the outgoing head boy who was elected by the staff and by his peers was an openly gay teenager who brought his boyfriend from outside the school to all school functions and for me that was quite extraordinary I mean wonderful but very, very hope-inspiring. So I do hope that things will change. Although, I don't know whether this is the right place to say it, but, but you know, it, it saddens, saddens me immensely that the Archbishop of Canterbury does not support gay marriage. Because, you know, the law pretty much is there. Certainly there are very strict laws about discrimination on the basis of sexuality and it seems to me very very hurtful to all members of the Anchor community that, that that's not going to be followed through by the church but that's my personal opinion um, but I think that's where issues of um, discipline comes in, in terms of what, whatever faith we follow there, are, there is a sense that um, 
we have to honour the teachings and the disciplines of each of our faiths and our church as we know them. And it was, you know, I, I like your idea about and, 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 and us going on finding out who we are sexually um, and to live that out. But there is a sense as well that we have to honour, that, that we do honour the disciplines of the faith groups that we represent. And you, you, you didn't mention discipline at all in terms of exploring uh, spirituality. Yes, um, that wasn't my subject. Um, I, would, I would question that we have to. I mean, I just dropped that in there. You say we have to respect the disciplines of our faith groups, but I, I wonder whether we do have to. In the church we have to. Well, as, <laughs> I can see by your, your collar that you're... <laughs> yeah. Yes, but... We have, we have a document, um, Issues in Human Sexuality, which is our basis, um, my prayer and my hope is that that is a working document, so we go on in our thinking, in our theology, um, to discover what God might be saying. Of course, yes, and you know these things move slowly, but I would definitely question the, the we have to. I mean, perhaps you have to because of your dog collar, but certainly I think a young man or woman growing up in the congregation doesn't have to. But it's, it's fair to say that we don't want to make it an inter-Anglican debate, and, and I'm retired bishop, so I am freer in some sense to say things. But very interestingly, I, uh, we're going on Sunday. Uh, I'm much too old to become a godfather, because I might be dead before the person uh, gets to his majority, but I'm being godfather on Sunday uh, at, at an adoption service. I, one of the people that I'm mentoring, that I'm his spiritual director, is Gary and I've travelled with him for quite a long time through his journey in that, and it seemed important to me that we ex- he was allowed to explore whether he should be able to adopt uh, a child. And interesting, and I was one of his referees and that sort of thing, and we, interestingly, we had known, I talked with his own bishop about it, uh, and his bishop has been very supportive uh, about it, and he would be, a, I don't know anybody who would be as good a father as, as, as he is. And, but the troubles we had were actually with the social services, who seemed to ask, and I got quite angry, who seemed to ask many more questions about him than they would have done had he been heterosexual and, uh, and so on. But eventually uh, it went through, and so I am going to the, uh, the, the adoption sort of ceremony that's happening uh, on Sunday in a different part of it's not this area of the country. And his own bishop is coming to conduct that as a way of affirming uh, his full inclusion uh, within uh, uh, his own community and that he, that he has chosen to be a father. And I think it would be a very good one. Hmm. Uh, so I think things are changing. And uh, I think when the, when the archbishop-to-be said he... he <coughs> it was known that he was opposed to gay marriage. I, I think what he was saying is, is that he is very supportive of uh, uh, if, if, if gay people come together in couples, he wants to be supportive of that, but he does want to re- reserve uh, the ma- marriage in the church as uh, the ceremony for man and woman. So I think he was, he was probably as to saying slightly less than he thought he was saying. Uh, and I think he has also, also said that part of 
part of the church's problem would have been uh, not so acute at this point had the church been more open to saying, yes, we bless you uh, to people in uh, civil partnerships, for instance. Mm. So I think he was saying so slightly differently uh, than, than how you heard him, uh, but undoubtedly he's yeah. still holding to the tradition. I don't know whether this is the place to go into the fine, fine print of... Yeah. But the point is that if he's denying church marriage to, to gay couples, then the, the slight is they're still there. Yes, I mean, yes, I say it's... Yeah. Could I broaden the discussion? Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think you mentioned the course of your, your, your talk, um, this idea of... Sorry. This idea of, of, of sexuality being the driving force behind the whole of the universe. Mm. And we use this lovely word, outigrate. Outigrate, yes. I love that. <laughs> and you also mentioned people, Mother Teresa you mentioned, I mean, you did mention Mother Teresa, during the course you did mention her, mm. and the Dalai Lama. Yes. And I'm just wondering, those people who have particularly chosen the celibate life, Mm. and so denying their own personal sexuality. Mm. How do they fit in with your model of outrageous? Mm. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, I can't speak. For, I didn't realise that. Did I actually say Mother Teresa? Mm. Well, I can. I can speak more about the Dalai Lama, perhaps, because that's more my ballpark. Um, what's very interesting for me about um, the celibate path, because it was without doubt some of the most loving and beautiful human beings I've met have been celibate nuns and monks. Um, is that I think that on one level, the Dalai Lama probably amongst them, recognise that when we talk about sexuality, we're often looking at it in such a narrow way. We're thinking about you know, shagging and like, procreation and like pornography and these sort of, not literally, but often those, that sort of tinge is around it when we talk about it. But certainly in the, in the tantric end of Buddhism, the driving force of the universe, they would say, is compassion. It's the sense of flowing out. And this is a, you know, obviously this is common to almost all religions, but it's interesting that this particular use of the word compassion is um, obviously a translation, but as I understand it, it's more than just sort of looking after people when they're sick. It's this fundamental flowing out of self into other. And when I use sexuality in the very widest sense, it's, it, almost, it almost becomes the same thing. So that when we, when we are with someone in an intimate way, if, if you've ever met the Dalai Lama, there is this alarming sense that in a room of hundreds, he's actually only there for you. Because there's this sense of being met and being flown, flown into. So the, the other person flows into you. That is, I think, the very, very essence of intimate sexuality. So that sort of... And it, and it doesn't have, even have to be people. It's the sort of... When we bring full attention into even an object or a book or a work of art that we're making or anything, it's a sort of outflowing from the narrow band of self into the, into the other. And I would say that the motive force of that is a sort of... is a sexuality, is a, is a sort of... Sexuality in the sense of erotic, perhaps that's the better word, the erotic drive to leave self to go to other. So it's a sort of, we're fascinated by the other, we're drawn in the way that when we're in love, that everything about the loved one becomes energising. 
So that it's not, it's not all me, 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 but like giving things to the other becomes the greatest gift. So it becomes this outflowing. So I think probably in someone like the Dalai Lama, or I can't speak for Mother Teresa, but that sense of the, the chaste intimacy is at such a, such a refined level that you know, actual sexual congress is not necessary. But for us mere, mere mortals, the spark, the sexual spark, is often what draws us out, like a fish hook, out of our little pond. Does that... Hmm. Someone else, yeah? Well, yes, I'm, I'm not... I, oh, sorry, yes, it was, a, it was an excellent point about my, my privilege as a, as a white, well-off um, sort of person that, with a lot of chance to jet off to Brazil and make documentaries and do all these things. Um, I, mean, I, 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 can't, I mean, that's such a huge question, I, I can't really... I don't, don't have a, a pat answer. I suppose then we move into the the political world of, of structure and what needs to be changed is the, the, the structure and the society which I think, in, apropos what we were talking about earlier is happening slowly certainly in these, this country, in America but you're, you're right, there are places in the world where it's, it's desperately distorted still desperately um, people are unprivileged in that sense um, but I can't apologise for what I am. I mean, I, this is my experience. I, I, I'm not a politician, thankfully, and I can't <laughs> legislate f- for the world. But, you know, I take your point that I, I am very privileged. Um, but I, I, when you talk about you know, working-class people in, in Norfolk, I think that the values of society, you know, on the legal front, have shifted so much that regardless of what certain faith communions say is the discipline one way or the other, society, the law, says that you can be together with your partner and that you should not be discriminated in any way. So in that sense, regardless of my middle-classness or my wealth, those things are universal across the UK at least. Whether the legal path is, is, the, is the only path, I would, you know, I would say that the spiritual path needs to catch up with the legal path. But um, I don't know if that's answering your question or flannelling. I suppose I was interested in, in the sense in the incredibly articulate presentation, how, sorry, I should speak, it was an incredibly articulate presentation, and in a sense, one needs to be able to. I would just be interested to know how, how people would 
enact or embody or sustain that way of living um, in different situations and how, whether you've seen that? Well, I suppose fundamentally when I, talk, when I think about my client base um, who come from all sorts of, sort of backgrounds, actually from Africa as well, HIV being such a terrible problem there, um, it's the, it's the internalised homophobia that causes them so much mental distress. Uh, you know, I have a client who comes from, not from Uganda actually, um, I shouldn't talk too much about my clients, but anyway, um, who comes from Africa and he is um, nominally straight, but he's HIV positive, he has sex with men. So his... You know, his in, in homophobia is really at one remove because he doesn't see himself as a gay person. Um, most of my other clients uh, are do identify as gay, but their in homophobia is very deep, and that's where their mental suffering comes from. And I think that if you, if we're not talking about the legal framework, we're talking about the spiritual framework. I think if you can tackle that sense of self-blame and counter it with self-compassion and an understanding of where that self-blame comes from, this can be very liberating, regardless of your background. So I suppose, in a a nutshell, that's where the therapy and the spirituality comes together. Liberating the self from within, from the either-or-ness of I'm bad or I'm good. Sort of... Talking off the top of my head there. So. <laughs> yes. Um, the ways in which people meet and the ease with which people are able to meet has changed over the years. Mm. I just like to share one little anecdote about Norwich. <coughs> about 50 years ago, uh, when there was an embryonic uh, gay society here, it met in a room that the convent had uh, on Ron Road. And one of the sisters came through and asked the, the men there, would you like a gramophone in case you'd like to do some dancing together? <laughs> Very gracefully. Um, but in those times, it was very difficult for men to meet. And I know people from that generation who stayed together for a very long time. And now we're at a time where things have changed again. It seems a lot of people meet via the internet, via website, etc. And it's, I don't know if it's a more easy-come, easy-go uh, attitude towards relationships. I wonder what your views are on the effect on somebody's spiritual well-being of you know, a promiscuous lifestyle and easy-come, easy-go attitude to um, being with other people. Hmm. Do you feel it has an effect on their spiritual wholeness? Or, or yes, absolutely. I mean, I would, I would question, actually, the statistics don't actually hold up so much the fact that gay people used to stay in long relationships and now don't. Typically, gay, gay relationships were often quite brief. There are, obviously, people who have been in long, long-term relationships, and I have plenty of friends who have been in long-term relationships, but the statistics show that actually gay relationships, gay relationships have always been brief, statistically. But putting that aside, I think that there is a huge problem, and I think promiscuity in the sense of sex addiction because that's essentially what we're talking about, is a huge symptom of this spiritual malaise, which is the inability or the, perhaps the, the misrecognition of what true sexuality is, which is about intimacy, and is extremely frightening. My therapist said, you know, 
having an intimate relationship is the most terrifying thing you can do when you do it properly. And as I was saying right at the beginning, those symptoms of you know, having short-term relationships, being sex-addicted, or having a confusion about sex and intimacy are all symptoms or are all results of that covert abuse in childhood. So that actually they are something to be worked with as, as a, a very, in a very compassionate way as a, a symptom of the damage done rather than, oh, gay people, they're so promiscuous, they need to kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps and get, you know, get all sort of settled, get married, or not. <laughs> what do you think of the that insofar as pornography is such a, a problem to so many, mm. what men, to women as well, but that that's not something that's confined at all to gay men, I mean, many heterosexual men are just as sex addictive and find it just as difficult yeah. to deal with sexuality. Yes, and this is, this is why I think that, that you know, narrowing it, you know, I narrowed it to gay, gay sexuality because that's my experience and because it was a way into the talk. But I think when we look at sexuality across the board, it, it gets distorted um, by, by you know, things like pornography and, and the fear, the terror of intimacy. Because again, I think we don't really grasp the full spiritual charge of sexuality because we've always been told that it actually is a bit bad. Our society is moving away from seeing um, homosexuality as taboo. Do you think in the future other taboos will be moved through? I'm thinking, for example, incest, for example, pedophilia. No, because I don't think those are, those are comparable things. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm not at all comparing them. Well, by bringing them up, you are in a way. I mean, the thing is that the love between two consenting adults, male or female, female or female, male or male, is, 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 um, does not harm anybody. Pedophilia, incest, does enormous harm. It's a form of abuse, terrible abuse for the child. So, you know, I'm not, not, there's, there's nothing harmful about consensual sexuality. So I don't think that's a category error. But from what you said before, those harmful acts often themselves come from harmful things that have been done to those people. Yes, exactly. That, you know, that some, of the, some of the tragic consequences that gay men and women are very kin to the tragic consequences of people who have been abused in incestuous or whatever paedophilic attack, mm-hmm. rape. So you know, that would be, they're in different categories really. Sorry, which, which debate is that? The debate within our community is about taking the decision to have um, civil partnerships oh. within our building. And um, of course, it, you know, in a national sense, we've got lots of debate going on about mm. such issues. And I think what I really enjoyed was that you moved my thinking into a much more open place from what you said. And so I really, really enjoyed it. And I wanted to say thank you. Oh, thank you very much. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, I do. F- I feel very passionately about it because I. It's amazing how, how one can live one's whole life, 
buying into a worldview that's clearly inimical to one's own interest, simply because it's a blind spot, because it's a dissociated sort of structure that's just there. But actually, if you turn around and go, that's nonsense. Love is love. People coming together and staying together is wonderful. We should be celebrating it, not driving a wedge between them, not causing them long-term mental distress. So it's a, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you. In my son's ten, and he can't see what the whole issue is about. Yeah. It's men and women. What you know? It's just what, what are we even asking the question for? Yeah, and I. Really that's, yeah, I'm very lucky. I work largely with younger, younger people, and sort of people in their twenties. TV industry is full of people in their twenties, and I'm always astonished at. You know, sometimes I'm not anymore, but like when I started out in TV, I was always quite hesitant about talking about my partner or you know, partner. It's already slightly camouflaged. Talking about my boyfriend or talking about even not having a boyfriend, you know, being a single gay man. Um, and now it's, it's so, there's like, oh, whatever. You know, it's so not uh, an issue. And actually they, they're a supportive, well, there's no difference. You know, if you're, you're heartbroken, if you've broken up, they're just a supportive, if you've broken up with a girl or a boy or whatever. So they don't be much for Uh, well, the tr- tragedy of HIV, of course, was that it, it afflicted an already uh, afflicted minority. It was a, a tragic, um, you know, murderous slaying of someone of a group that was already in a minority under pressure. And um, I think it sort of poured petrol onto people's already entrenched views. But interesting, there was a fantastic, and I do urge you to watch it if, um, if you get a chance, called We Were There, or There We Were, I can't quite remember. It's a wonderful documentary about the very first outbreak of AIDS in San Francisco, the first year, I think, of it. And just charts in this unbearable detail of how, from literally one day to the next, suddenly this whole community was decimated, people dying and dropping like flies. And then they, they talked about the kind of impact on the gay community and on America. And what was interesting is that the gay community before had been sort of stipulated, you know, the, the stereotype was they were just promiscuous, fun-loving, crazy you know, people. And post the AIDS epidemic, they were seen as caring because they got together and they looked after each other and they pushed through in the face of horrendous bigotry in America at that time and, and here as well terror and fear in the health professionals they pushed through care plans community projects legislation, pressurised the government so that people would care and it was very interesting, I hadn't really thought about it because I grew up sort of after it had started but I was aware that Actually, yes, there is this idea that gay people are caring, which apparently was absolutely absent before. So in one sense, I think it probably it in, increased the homophobia of those who were almost hom- already homophobic, but it, it added a quality that led to people's tolerance growing. It's a wonderful film. I can't quite remember the name of it. But. Why was it called AIDS? Hmm? Uh, you know, it's coming to AIDS. 
Autoimmune inquired is, stands for something. We just have a couple of hands and then I think because it'd be really nice to have some time you know, to chat to others to inform me into each other. So let's just have these two questions or comments, whatever they are. Um, yeah, you, you are probably not as articulate as the other people here because I've got a working class background. But you, you talk about kind of flowing out to other people and never saying no and being more inclusive. And I think you can see from my wrinkles that I've been around the block a couple of times. So I, I knew, say, at 11, 12, 13, I knew I was different. And I knew that society said to me, you're evil, you're a pervert. We don't want you to be part of this society. Because obviously I knew, I, well, I think it's obvious that I'm gay. Well, it's... <laughs> Because now. <laughs> society said to an 11, 12 year old girl, You're a pervert, you're evil. And since then, I dislike straight people. I have never, apart from very recently, quite advanced age, have any straight friends. Hmm. And I, I always said I would lift my little finger to help gay people. Straight people, oops, sorry, <laughs> the articulate. So, to this day, I have this hatred to straight people. I don't mix with them. I just don't want to know. Like you, I had to work situation. Um, and now I'm tired of doing it volunteering. Mm. So I have to. But I mean, am I, you know, I don't particularly want to go and get over my dislike gay straight people, but that goes against what you're saying. Mm. Well, um. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I don't like speculation. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> no, I think it's actually, I think it's a, it's a tremendously important point that you're making. Because actually, the, the splitting, and I'm, I don't want to, obviously I don't, I don't know you, I don't want to, but actually what's happening is there's another form of defensive splitting, because it's an appalling mistake. It's an appalling a breach of what should be happening to a young child. They should be loved and supported and encouraged and everything that they feel should be honoured. But you and many other, many of us, our experiences is other. And that's incredibly painful. The fear and anger and fury and all the feelings that come with that can lead to exactly the same splitting that unfortunately drives people to hate gay people. And that's a defence. That's a that's a sometimes a sensible defence. But I suppose what I might just float out there is that actually, as as we get older, as we as the world changes, perhaps that to release that to go back to those you know those red circles and green blue circles to release that pushing away, even just to just not hate quite so much, can actually feel like a great relief. That actually it's a completion of a cycle that, you know, they, they talk about the coming out process has lots of st- stages. And one of them is exactly as you say, that we wall ourselves in, we hang out with gay people and we don't want to know about the straight community because they're shits. But 
actually there's a, there is a very pleasant next step where we just, well, we don't really care that much, you know, if they do their thing, whatever. And then actually we might find that that's not the case, that they're just human like everyone else. And probably got fucked up in a different way, excuse my French. <laughs> in, a, in a Unitarian chapel, sorry. So, yes, I, I, totally accept, I totally understand where you're coming from, but I would perhaps offer the, the thought that there is an, another step where those, those walls can be dissolved. But you know, it's not for me to say. Did you, did you say that? No, I said it quite. Oh. <laughs> but sometimes actually to speak out is, is really, it's very tonic. Because, you know, people can say these things without thinking about it, and you say, oh, but I am. Then they're like, oh, God, I'm really sorry, I don't mean it. Oh. <laughs> so we had one more question here. Yes, one of the phrases you used in your talk, perhaps is one of the most disturbing I've ever heard. Ooh internalized homophobia. Mm. Um, the part that I follow believes that if you don't find it within you, you won't find it without you. And the concept of someone being by upbringing, by prejudice, by peer pressure, forced into that situation is perhaps one of the most disturbing images that I've ever come across. And when you went through the list of possible sources, prejudice with major religions. Um, how do you, can you help your clients cope with what you have managed to cope with in the same sort of way where that sort of teaching, that sort of moral imperative has been placed, that has created, internalized, and led to some of the things that you listed? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you can. I don't think it's, it's, not, it's not actually rocket science because it is a horrible, terrible thing, internalised homophobia, but very, very widespread and, and common. Uh, but it, it, it withers, like most of these bogeymen, it withers when it's dragged up into the light. Because if you, if you, if you explain and see very clearly that this is a distortion of thinking, a distortion of perception, and this is actually not your fear, not your phobia, not your hatred, it's somebody else's then it's much easier to go, hmm, actually I don't believe that anymore. So, in some, you know, I, have a, I have a client, and it's, it's not instant, but we were working together for a year, and he came in with enormous self-hatred. And over the course of a year, he's definitely moved into a, in a, a place, a gradual place of being much more, um, certainly at ease with himself, and he's not found a partner, but he's certainly much more at ease with his sexuality and doesn't, 
doesn't blame himself for, for, the, for the, the guilt and dirtiness that he felt when he first arrived. And you know, in my, in my own journey as well, it was a very, it's a very subtle, it's not like I went around saying, oh, I'm a dirty gay, I shouldn't be here. It's a very subtle way of walling things off. Just, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to talk about that here, I'm not going to say this here, I'm not going to do that here. A sort of editing of yourself. Take you're just a very small fraction of what you could be. I think we'll draw stunts there on the official part of the meeting. I think tea and refreshments are av- available, and so do stay. There's some there's things to eat and things to drink, so do stay around. Alistair will be here for about another half an hour, at any rate. Touch the train. Uh, I think that's right before we get into his train. Uh, I, I would want to pick up what you were saying, Jane, that uh, the, this whole question of integrate to outigrate has been. Uh, something that uh, uh, lit, lit up things for me, that explained things in a, in a new way that one's often want to say. And I think I want to say to Alistair, on behalf of all of us, how valuable we found what you've come to share tonight and how much we uh, are grateful to you for sharing of yourself in such an open way, which has made it so much easier for us to uh, link our own experience into your experience and to, no doubt, as so many of us have now, haven't we, the experience of those, if, if, if we're straight, those gay people that we know and certainly I would say have come to value uh, as one's own ideas have changed over the years and I would certainly say that my, one of my, my well certainly my closest friend is gay and being able to have journeyed with him on that over the last 15 years has been one of the richest experiences of my life and I think Alistair you've opened up for us in new ways some of the ways in which we can experience that and share that together. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening and please do join us again for more podcasts from Mindsprings. You can find out more about us and our work at mind-springs.org That's mind-springs.org